This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. They are going after our guy. Let's go after five of their guys. It's actually a violation of the Bible. As you've probably heard by now, Trump sounded the alarm on Saturday about his potential indictment and arrest, writing via Truth Social, quote, the far and away leading Republican candidate. I love how he's sucking himself off as he's announcing he's going to be arrested. <laughs> and former president of the United States of America will be arrested on Tuesday of next week. Protest, take our nation back. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, presumably in anticipation of Trump supporters heeding his call to take to the streets, NYPD was actually seen putting up barricades outside of Manhattan's criminal court, which tells us that they do expect something, or at least they think that Trump's call to protest is going to yield some sort of civil unrest. But Manhattan's district attorney Alvin Bragg responded to Trump's call to action by reasonably viewing that as an attempt to intimidate his office. However, in a memo to colleagues, he remained defiant, writing, we do not tolerate attempts to intimidate our office or threaten the rule of law in New York. He continues, as with all of our investigations, we will continue to apply the law evenly and fairly and speak publicly only when appropriate. Now, if and when this happens, I do think that it's reasonable to expect some protests, but perhaps not as big of a turnout as Trump is hoping for, given that some of his most prominent supporters are saying they're not going to be there this time around. As AP reports, Ali Alexander, who was an organizer of the Stop the Steal movement, staged rallies to promote Trump's baseless claims that Democrats stole the 2020 election from him, warned Trump supporters that they would be jailed or worse if they protested in New York City. One of Alexander's allies in the Stop the Steal campaign was conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, who amplified the election fraud claims on his Infowars show. Alexander posted that he had spoken to Jones and said that neither of them would be protesting this time around. Also, right-wing radio host Jesse Kelly explicitly told his supporters on Twitter to not protest, writing, again, what's happening to Trump is beyond injustice, but do not go to a communist city that's hilarious to protest. And if you do, you better be a rapper because that's the only way you're getting that pardon from him if he wins again. This is abuse of his followers and I despise it. Now, additionally, lawmaker and coup plotter Marjorie Taylor Greene wrote, how many feds slash fed assets are in place to turn protest against the political arrest of President Trump into violence? In other words, why show up if you're just going to be labeled a violent insurrectionist again? Because the last time that label was a little bit um, incorrect. Whatever, Marjorie. Now, in terms of whether or not he's arrested or indicted, I'll believe it when I see it. And if it does happen, though, it is going to be because of the illegal hush money payments that he allegedly made to Stormy Daniels with his campaign funds. And there's also talks of a potential RICO case against Donald Trump. So we'll just have to wait and see. I really don't know what to expect in terms of the legality of this case, where it's going to go, how it's going to affect his campaign or how many people are going to show up to protest his arrest. However, one thing that I'm very confident about is that the rights reaction to his arrest will be thoroughly entertaining and i fully expect their meltdown to be the comedy event of the year and i say this because the mere prospect of him being indicted in the first place has already led to hilariously stupid reactions 
For example, here's what Michael Knowles, who filmed this scene before becoming a Tradcon commentator, recommended Republicans do if Trump does actually get indicted. What should the Republicans do in response? I think that a Republican governor, or more precisely, I guess, a Republican attorney general, should arrest a prominent criminal lib. There is no shortage of candidates of prominent liberal politicos who have committed crimes. Look around the Clinton circles, look around the Biden circles, look at Clinton and Biden themselves. Plenty of big criminal libs out there who have completely gotten off the hook. And there are plenty of Republican governors and attorneys general out there. I think you would need a Republican governor as well as an attorney general, because if the attorney general uh, indicts a big prominent criminal lib, and, and there's a Democrat governor, the Democrat governor will apply political pressure or eventually probably just pardon the criminal lib. So I think you, you need to have a Republican governor there as well. But let's do it. Let's, let's indict a big criminal lib. Let's, invi let's indict two of them. They, they are going after our guy. Let's go after five of their guys. There's no risk here. Some people push back against this suggestion. They say, well, we're better than them, Michael. We're, yeah, sure, I think we are better than them. I'm not suggesting we do anything illegal or unjust. I'm not saying we go after an innocent lib. I'm saying we should go after a criminal lib against whom the law has not been applied. I love how he's trying to treat this as some sort of a prisoner's exchange or chess match. Well, you see, if you arrest our guy, we're going to arrest two of your guys. <laughs> so choose your next move carefully, libs. I mean, our criminal justice system... Michael literally does not work that way. And for all of this talk of weaponizing the criminal justice system to go after political opponents, what exactly would you call that recommendation? Is that not explicitly using our criminal justice system for political purposes? I thought that you were all against that. Now, with that being said, I for one have no problem going after criminal liberals. In fact, lock up all political criminals in both parties for all I care. But the decision to indict one person doesn't hinge on whether or not other defendants in completely unrelated cases are indicted. His recommendation is so bizarre. Like the, the word that comes to mind is Karen-esque, but it's dumber than that. Like it's more toddler tantrum-esque. But an even funnier response came from attorney and friend of Jeffrey Epstein, Alan Dershowitz, who explained how Trump's indictment is actually illegal, not necessarily based on U.S. law, but based on divine law. You talk about how this is bigger than Trump, about if you're able to do this to political opponents and dissidents, it sets bad precedent. It allows prosecutors to go above and beyond, and it actually makes us less free. Without a doubt, uh, there was a South American dictator who said, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, the law. You can use the law to get anybody, as Justice Jackson said, or as the KGB had said, show me the man and I'll find you uh, the crime. This is the worst example in my 60 years of practicing criminal law, of targeting somebody for prosecution, and then rummaging through the books, giving people immunity, and trying to concoct a crime that doesn't exist. And if this is allowed to succeed, none of our liberties are safe. You know, today it's a Republican who's a target. Tomorrow it's a Democrat. And the day after tomorrow, it's your Uncle Charlie or your nephew or your niece. Mm -hmm. uh, there'd be no limits on what prosecutors can do to their political enemies. And they're going to do it to people who are running against them for DA next. And uh, it's just a, such a violation. And not only a violation of American law and civil liberties, it's actually a violation of the Bible. The Bible instructs judges two things. Don't take bribes. That's obvious. 
But the number one thing is don't recognize faces. Well, shit, maybe the man, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office hasn't heard about that. Can someone maybe tell Alvin Bragg that indicting Trump is against the Bible? <laughs> because I'm sure that he would change his mind immediately. What do you even say to that? Listen, if they're this hysterical now, imagine how funny it's going to be if Trump is actually arrested. Now, not every single Republican is down on this news because Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he towed the line, sure, about how this is the weaponization of our legal system. But he also um, was visibly giddy while talking about this at a press conference, and he even managed to get in a jab at Trump, which I'm sure Trump did not take kindly to. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. Sure, Ron, keep pretending that you're outraged. It comes off as very genuine. See, this is why Trump calls him to sanctimonious, because <laughs> everything about him is so fake. Now, I'm sure that that little line there pissed off Donald Trump, but not as much as this line. I've got to spend my time on issues that actually matter to people. Uh, I can't spend my time uh, worrying about uh, things, things of that nature. So, so we're not going to be involved in it in any way. Um, I'm fighting for Floridians and I'm fighting back against Biden. That's what I do every single day. That might seem innocuous, but that's huge because in other words, DeSantis is not going to intervene in this case. And that means he's not going to stop Trump being extradited to New York for prosecution. And we know why. It's because nobody benefits from Trump's prosecution more than Ron DeSantis. Now, Trump responded to those comments with an absolute banger, writing via Truth Social, Ron DeSanctimonious will probably find out about false accusations and false stories sometimes in the future as he gets older, wiser, and better known when he's unfairly and illegally attacked by a woman, even classmates that are underage, or possibly a man, exclamation. <laughs> I'm sure he will want to fight these misfits just like I do. Love it so much. Does Trump know something that we don't? Probably not, because if he did, he would have already told us. Either way, this news is fanning the flames of a GOP civil war. It's leading to mass hysteria among the GOP. And I'm here for all of it. So I'm hoping that Trump does get indicted and arrested, not just because I think it'll be extremely funny, but because when you break the law, you should be held accountable as any other American would. Because unlike these Trump sycophants, I actually do believe in equal justice under the law. And even though our country consistently fails to live up to that standard, when it actually does, I for one think that that's cause for celebration, not hissy fits. But we'll leave that there. I don't know what's going to happen, but either way... I'm going to grab the popcorn because it's going to be very, very interesting. I'm just going to choose to believe that the election was stolen and everything that he says, because I kind of like based my whole personality on supporting Donald Trump. So I'm not going to maybe accept the option. You live in We're going to Brandon today. Turn it off. Yeah. Let's him.
Well, folks, it's Tuesday, the day that Trump said that he was going to be arrested. And there's this feeling of anxiousness and, dare I say, excitement in the air as we all wait to see if it's actually going to happen. Now, unfortunately, at the time that I record this video, it still has not happened, although I'm still holding out hope that it will happen, although Trump supporters are crossing their fingers hoping that this doesn't actually come to fruition. And they're trying to do everything in their power to dissuade officials in New York from making this decision. For example, CBS News reports that there's been an uptick in online threats towards law enforcement, judges, and government officials in New York, and a bomb threat was even called into a New York courthouse just moments before they heard New York Attorney General Letitia James's civil suit against Donald Trump. So there's that, which was to be expected. And there were also barricades put up in Manhattan to prevent Trump sycophants from violently rioting again. But one thing that I didn't necessarily expect was the number of anti-Trump protesters showing up to support Trump's potential indictment. And according to some reports, the anti-Trump protesters actually outnumbered the pro-Trump protesters. Now, Newsmax caught one of these protests on camera and their cope was very predictable. Interestingly enough, we bring you this live shot here. We know the uh, former president has called for, for protests in a peaceful manner. Um, many Republicans push back on that. But interestingly enough, it's the opposite side that's outside protesting now, saying insurrection, TikTok time's up. No one is above the law. Trump is guilty. Again, many supporting the possible indictment of former President Trump there um, again yeah, we'll those signs really look like they were made by the grassroots grassroots groups too don't they john yeah we'll continue to follow that again barricades have been put up in yes because the only way protesters can obtain large banners is if they are funded by george soros we all know that's what he's thinking it's predictable any protest that they don't like is funded by George Soros, or they've been infiltrated by the feds, or both. But there was a mix of pro-Trump and anti-Trump people in New York all over the place. But one thing that I didn't necessarily expect was the uptick in comedians showing up to, um, I, I guess you could say, guide us through this news that we may or may not witness, because this is indeed historic. So Jason Selvig of The Good Liars and Walter Masterson both showed up to different areas in Manhattan and they trolled the Trump supporters. And what they managed to accomplish here is, I think, as historic as Trump's possible indictment. And I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but let me explain here. So at one location, the pro-Trump right side broadcasting network was there and an interviewer was talking to different Trump supporters about their thoughts on the former president's possible indictment. When all of a sudden, comedian Jason Selvig kind of finesses his way into an interview with them. And while the person whose interview he interrupted recognizes him as Jason Selvig from The Good Liars, so a troll, the interviewer doesn't really seem to be onto him until the end of the interview. Let's watch. The thing is, the DA, Alan Briggs, won't even comment on it. He hid in his office all day, and then while we were waiting for him for five hours and the media wanted to talk to him because he's changed some felonies to misdemeanors and changed some misdemeanors to felonies and is specifically prosecuting Donald Trump when he, didn't, he did very little wrong, if anything. He's prosecuting. Look around the city right now. I mean, there's crime everywhere. Hey, good right? liars. What's up? How are you? Good to How see you. you? There's, good? there's crime everywhere. And I think like this is a political prosecution. It, 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 it has to be right. Like that's that, that's the only way 
it, it could be happening right now, is that they're going after him political, politically. The only other option is that Donald Trump lost by 7 million votes and is a loser who can't deal with the fact that he, he lost the election because he based his whole personality on being a winner and calling people losers. Uh, so, so is you think his attitude, his approach, his personality is what is 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 what got us in this mess in the first place, potentially, or I'm just going to choose to believe that the election was stolen and everything that he says because I kind of like base my whole personality on supporting Donald Trump. So I'm not going to maybe accept the. Option. You live in you live in the city. I live in the city. Yeah. 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 So how has the city changed over the last couple of years here? I mean, I know crime, but I don't live here, so I don't. I can't judge whether or not it's gone up or down. Yeah, the New York City, I think, is maybe 59th in, in crime right now. I think there's four cities in Indiana uh, that has have more crime statistically than New York does. Yeah, exactly. So I haven't really noticed a lot of crime, but I, I do see it. And on you know Fox News, they say it's it's much more dangerous now. I don't. See, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen any more crime. So like maybe that's it might not be true. But I I'm going to choose to believe that it is true because I, I, I did see that on Fox News. <laughs> yeah, of course, because whatever you see on Fox News is true, right? Yeah. Well, and just like CNN and MSNBC. If you see it on if you see it on cable news, it's got to well, be no, true. Donald Trump said CNN and MSNBC are fake news. Okay. That's right. We got to use the fake news. Okay. So what do you what do you expect today? I mean, we're, there's a lot of media here. Uh, there's a lot of people just like you, just like this gentleman here, Braxton, that is, that is, that is, that is, uh, that have come out here and check everything out. So yeah, there you go. Uh, so, I mean, what's your take on it so far? I mean, there's a lot of people out here. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of media. Um, I would say just, it's basically all media. And I guess there's, uh, Bra is it Braxton? Braxton. And then I see another guy with a flat. It seems like there's about 10 Trump supporters here, but mostly the rest are, are media. Yeah. You are scared to come out here? I got to be honest with you, Braxton. I, you know, I, I'm not sure where Make America Great Again on the, on the streets here. Well, I think here's what it is. You know, a lot of people are saying maybe it's going to be like a, a false flag operation, like January 6th. Like Donald Trump told everyone to be in D.C. on January 6th, and then everyone afterwards protests, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and then like it, it turned into like a riot, and I'm I'm wondering if like if people come here. If they're worried it's going to be a false flag, even though Donald Trump told everyone to protest, they're not showing Absolutely, up. Yeah, not planning on showing up. I had one guy here. They actually, let's turn the camera real quick. He's still yelling at this young lady. Oh my God. I tried to have a conversation with him earlier, and oh. it was impossible. Really? But as soon as the camera stopped, it was normal. Oh, really? So go think, you know, think yeah, about that for a second. About that. There's something weird about that. Well, we appreciate your time. Yeah, First thing, you. what was your name? Brian. Brian. With Right Side. Big fan of Right Side. Oh, I appreciate I'm it. You're very nice. Jason. Thank, thank you, Jason. Nice to meet you. All right, I want to bring. And, um, our very own. Okay, hang on a sec. Let's let's go over here. Hang on a sec. I got Mike Crispy with me. Let's go over here. Let's walk and talk for a second. So as you saw towards the end of the interview, there he was very clearly trying to get away from Jason because it was clear that Jason wanted to talk. Now I don't know if that interviewer picked up on the fact that he was being trolled, but there was also a commotion happening behind him. There was somebody that was there that was being loud and I guess trying to debate the Trump supporters. So it could have been that they just moved away from Jason to film that, but either way, Jason was not done with them. And as they were filming this loud confrontation between a pro-Trump person and an anti-Trump person, well, Jason cuts in again to bring up QAnon. See, normal people don't behave like this, Brian. You're nobody. Are you? I don't even know you. Of course you 
you don't know me. So why are you coming in my face? Why are you following me? Thought. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so you know, like there's there's the QAnon. Fuck like you. QAnon, they keep right. saying there's going to be all yeah, these arrests, and they never happen. Right. Have you noticed that? I'm not a follower of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe this is the arrest that they were talking about. Maybe we should get the hell maybe out of here. What, maybe it's like trust the plan. Maybe this is the arrest maybe right now, Donald Trust Trump. the plan. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah maybe so. That, what are, what's your thoughts on a guy like that coming out here screaming? Well, you know, he's here. He's he's nonviolent. He's he's screaming. As long as he doesn't get physical, I think that's all right. You got a First Amendment right. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you guys. All right. Thank you. Right. No, but, right. Brian, I mean, you know, all these people here are peaceful. All these people are exercising their First Amendment. And it's always one angry, depraved, wacko leftist who comes out here and stirs up the crowd. And they want to fight. They want it to turn violent. Masterful. Just masterful. Now, I watched the actual stream itself. And after they got away from Jason, the RSBN host moved far away from all of that crowd so that way Jason wouldn't come back. I think that towards the end he probably picked up on the fact that Jason was trolling him. But I just, I love the way that Jason cut in as they're filming this confrontation. It reminded me of this meme from The Office. <laughs> Is that not perfect? Now, in a different area in Manhattan, specifically outside of Manhattan's criminal court, Walter Masterson was there and he was also trolling Trump supporters. But he took a very different approach in that he didn't infiltrate one of their broadcasts. He tried to co-opt the message and blend in. But as you're going to see, they were a little bit taken aback by the particular message that Walter Masterson uh, was, was shouting. Just watch. We are here in front of the courthouse where they're going to illegally arrest Donald Trump. We are here to fuck Brandon. Ah! We're gonna fuck Brandon today! Turn it off! Yeah. Let's fuck him! The look on his face there. <laughs> he knew at that point in time that Walter Masterson was fucking with him. There's there's no way. You know, the first time he's like, okay. We're trying to say, fuck Joe Biden. You were a little bit off there, but let's try again. And then repeatedly, Walter Masterson just repeats, yeah, I want to fuck Biden. And I, I think that he kind of picks up what Walter, Walter Masterson was putting down. But this next clip was great because you don't see Walter Masterson. And I believe that this was shared on Twitter by someone other than Walter Masterson, although he retweeted it. But he kind of just blends into a crowd and you hear a chant. But amid that chant, you also hear Walter Masterson with the same message. And this had me rolling. That might be my favorite clip of the entire year because <laughs> there's like multiple people <laughs> they're chanting let's go brandon and walter masterson is louder than all of them like you can <laughs> you can hear walter masterson saying i want to fuck him and he's he's louder than them which is just it's amazing i don't i don't know how he does it but he blends in and they don't suspect it
Although I, I would assume that they realized that he was trolling towards the end there where he talks about, yeah, I want to fuck Joe Biden. It's just brilliant. So look, folks, I don't know what's going to happen with regard to Trump being indicted or arrested, if that's still going to happen today. But either way, this news, um, it definitely helps me. The news being that comedians infiltrated these events, because I think I speak for everyone when I say that there's a little bit of anxiousness in the air as i stated earlier it's it's palpable right we all don't know what's going to happen everyone for different reasons is kind of um anxious about the possible news of trump being indicted and or arrested but either way news like this it's just more lighthearted and it makes me feel um at ease about the situation knowing that i can feel confident that the memes are going to be absolutely dank and fire in the event trump is arrested because i mean he hasn't even been arrested yet. Just the possible news has led to hilarious outcomes. So imagine if he actually is arrested. Get your memes ready. It's going to be absolutely a fun time on the Internet. We'll put it that way. I don't get your third party because I read your website and it's a bunch of mush. <coughs> it, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying it's not like specific. It doesn't even mention this. And, and why start a third party, which is a long shot anyway, if you're not going to be bold and what? Well, that was awkward. You just watched Bill Maher, the target demographic for Andrew Yang's centrist forward party, tell him that he thinks the party is useless. And I have to say, I agree with Bill Maher this time. To even call it a branding exercise for Andrew Yang is too charitable because I think that most people view him as less serious now than before, myself included. So if it's just a branding exercise, he's failed miserably in that regard as well. But before I tell you my thoughts about this, let's hear Yang's response because he was obviously not happy about what Bill Maher had to say. Oh, I'd love to dig into this. Please do. Yeah. So what I determined was that our current political system is not going to address poverty or climate change or polarization unless you actually fix the incentives. And it was a, a U.S. senator who said this to me, and everyone needs to understand this. She said, we're at a point in American life where an issue is worth more to us unaddressed than addressed. Because if I lean forward to solve the problem, what happens? I get, I get beat up by my base, my job security goes down, I get attacked. Right. So we're in a no compromise zone. So if you wanted to, let's say, uh, alleviate poverty in America, you have to fix our democratic system. This two-party system is not designed to deliver solutions. And if we had three parties or even more parties, that's not going to change the incentive structure that plagues our entire political system. Because the incentive structure isn't created alone by the two-party duopoly. It's created by capitalism, Andrew Yang. So he's trying to treat the symptoms, but not the illness itself, because, well, He's a capitalist, so I'm assuming that his cognitive dissonance doesn't let him see that electoral reform alone is insufficient. More parties under our current capitalist system will just result in more corrupt organizations that will inevitably represent corporate interests. But even if you wanted more than just two electorally viable political parties, which I do and I'm sure that most people watching do, Simply creating another political party isn't automatically going to end the duopoly. It's not like one party can change the entire system. We already have hundreds of different political parties in states across the country, but they're all not electorally viable because of our electoral institutions, keyword being institutions. 
That means that in order to end the duopoly, you have to change the institutions and end our majoritarian first-past-the-post winner-take-all system. And even though Andrew Yang supports things like ranked choice voting, open primaries, and independent redistricting, none of these things, even if you pass all of them, would end the duopoly. How do we get to proportional representation? Is he proposing an increase in the district magnitude? Has he thought about single transferable vote in lieu of ranked choice voting? I mean, these are all questions that seem esoteric, and that's because they are. There's an entire subfield within comparative politics dedicated to electoral engineering, and comparative politics is a subfield of political science. The fact that Andrew Yang seemingly doesn't know shit about any of this is very telling. But if he's going to speak about this as an authority, he needs to have at least an elementary understanding of electoral engineering. Has he even heard of Duverger's law? I mean, I don't mean to sound condescending, but these are things that you should be able to speak intelligently about if you're serious about changing the political system. Now, he also says that our current political system is not going to address poverty or climate change or polarization, and he's correct. But again, this isn't because there's a lack of compromise between Democrats and Republicans. It's the result of the commodification of every single element of American life due to, again, capitalism. This includes elections, too, which is why most politicians are little more than useful idiots for large multinational corporations. So the fact that he doesn't address this tells me that he doesn't know what he's talking about. But Representative Alyssa Slotkin jumps in, and while her comments are probably more coherent than Yang's, she's also not addressing the elephant in the room. And I'll tell you why when we come back. I'm not 100% sure how a different party, I mean, you have to explain how that's going to change the whole system. But here's the thing. If you have a senator, as someone who's running for Senate, if you have a senator who's saying, if you have a senator saying the incentives are wrong, so I can't do the right thing, that's the problem, not the fact that we need another party. It's that you have people who won't take risks. You have people who are going to put their reelection over anything else, who are worried from a, a primary from their left or for right, yep. 100%. But if you put people who are brave in those places, if you put people who are saying, like, look, if I don't win my next election, no one dies. I can go on. I'll find another job then you actually see the incentives change because then they want to do the right thing. That is part of why our government doesn't work. It sometimes is people. So look, look, Alyssa, first. So she first points out that if the incentive structure is the core critique that he's making here, then why not just change the incentive structure? Now, the things that Andrew Yang thinks that by changing the two-party system, you are effectively changing the incentive structure, but that's that's not correct. But She's not wrong here. There are things that Yang could theoretically advocate for within the confines of capitalism that would still make substantial changes, but not to capitalism itself. He could support campaign finance reform, get money out of politics, or place restrictions on corporate lobbying. But his main solution is a centrist third party, which again, only makes sense if you think that all of Americans' political problems stem from a lack of compromise. Having said that, though, Alyssa Slotkin also doesn't adequately address the actual problems, and she doesn't identify the incentives that 
actually make lawmakers beholden to corporations. She suggests that fears about not getting reelected is the driving factor behind their behavior, but that's not true either. It's the corporate money. Now, why won't you point this out? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because venture capitalists and hedge funds were some of her biggest donors in the last election cycle. And I'm assuming as a direct result of who funds her, the priority page on her website is almost as empty as Yang's. So we have two people that know that something's wrong, right? Their instinct there is correct, but they don't know the first thing that you should do to address this problem. They have no idea, they're clueless. Now, I wanna show you one last clip where Yang responds to Slotkin, and it ends with Bill Maher essentially bodying Andrew Yang. And to say that Bill Maher bodied anyone almost makes me feel physical pain, but unfortunately, I have to give Bill Maher credit here. This was really embarrassing for Andrew Yang. I, I love what you're saying, but there was a guy in Michigan who bravely voted to impeach Donald Trump mm -hmm. at great personal risk, Peter Meyer, and he lost his seat in part because Democrats boosted his extremist challenger because that challenger was going to be easier to beat in the general. We have an incentive system right now. If you step up like Peter did or Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney, you're out of there. And so there are people that see this and say, OK, I get it. But the way out is to do what they did in Alaska, which is why Lisa Murkowski is the only Republican senator who voted to impeach Donald Trump, who made it back uh, and was up for re-election in 22. You know why? Because they got rid of the party primaries in Alaska. That's why Sarah Palin lost to Mary Peltola. That's why Lisa Murkowski beat Kelly Shabaka, the Trump-endorsed loony, who would have beaten her in a, a Republican primary. You get rid of the primaries, you fix the incentives, and that's what the forward party is designed to do. I I just say, okay. I would just say that I think it's it's one thing to have that conversation at a state level, and I'm not against having that that kind of primary, right? There's not a different a different party there. There's not a third party that they're part of. It's a different primary system. But when you're talking about a third party, like I like math, right? And I want to make sure that if we have a third party, yeah, <laughs> that if we have a third party, that it's not going to be handing the country over to people who are extreme who have fascist leanings. Like, I want to make sure that we, we do. I'm not the last person to say that the Democratic Party is perfect, trust me. But I'm just concerned that a third party means we're handing the party, the, the country over to people who do not have good intentions for democracy. And, and, and what about the issue, though? I mean, don't, if you're going to start the third party, don't you at least have to have one major issue? And I thought you had one. The, the, this UBI thing, universal basic income, everybody gets free money. Whether you believe it or not, it's an idea. I don't usually say this, but Bill Maher is right. He's right. The Ford Party doesn't have any policies, not even UBI, which was Yang's signature issue. And that's because when you create this weird mishmash of centrists from both parties who don't stand for anything except their own self-aggrandizement, even vague policy commitments can facilitate the breakdown of this already tenuous alliance. But from his standpoint, where he thinks that hyperpolarization is the main issue in American politics, it does make sense to think that Democrats backing more extreme politicians in Republican primaries in particular exacerbates the issue because it does. But the example that he uses to demonstrate the value of ranked choice voting with respect to Alaska inadvertently demonstrates the limitations of ranked choice voting. If, you're, if your best sales pitch for ranked choice voting is that we'll get more Lisa Murkowski's, 
You're doing a terrible job at selling ranked choice voting, Andrew Yang. Lisa Murkowski might be more moderate when it comes to rhetoric, but she still votes for Republicans the majority of the time. She's a more polite partisan, but she's still a partisan nonetheless. But then Alyssa Slotkin claims that third parties could lead to vote splitting, essentially. And let me respond to that by saying, first of all, to the extent that that's true, the Libertarian Party takes away more Republican votes than the Green Party takes away Democratic Party votes. But second of all, if you worry that Yang's forward party might take away more Democratic Party votes, that right there is a really good reason to support nationwide ranked choice voting. But Alyssa Slotkin does not support that, and Yang didn't bring this up in response to her. Instead, he touted how ranked choice voting saved fucking Lisa Murkowski. These two are insufferable, I swear to God. So the problem with this conversation is you have two people identifying real problems with our political system. They know something's wrong, but they're talking around the solution, which leads to political commentary as hollow as Yang's forward party's platform. And if right-leaning centrist Bill Maher, of all people, doesn't see the appeal of Yang's forward party, then the question is, who is this even supposed to appeal to? Because when your target demographic is saying that this idea is really stupid, then I just don't see how this isn't already a miserable failure. Comedian Jon Stewart has been on a roll lately. He's been owning Republican politicians, shining light on issues that have been propagandized heavily by our mainstream media. And on top of that, last week, he utterly owned Larry Summers. So this has led to one individual making a conclusion about what Jon Stewart should do, specifically where he should take his advocacy next. And that is the presidency. Howard Stern is saying, not only that Jon Stewart should run for president, but that he owes it to the country to do just that. As The Hill explains, if President Biden chose not to run for re-election, Stern said on his eponymous SiriusXM show, then he figured out who should run for president on the Democratic side. His name is Jon Stewart, Stern said. That guy is so fucking smart and bright and also witty and really measured when he takes on a debate. Stern told listeners about the Apple TV Plus, the problem with Jon Stewart host. He knows how to talk and, you know, he would work his ass off to be a good president. Stern, 69, nice, said. I'm telling you, he could also win because people like Jon Stewart, Stern said, noting how Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was a comedic actor before entering the political world. Praising Stewart's advocacy work on Capitol Hill, Stern said, remember when John went to Congress and lobbied for the 9-11 first responders? Watch when he talks to politicians and he confronts them, Stern said. Watch the guy. He just makes a lot of good points. He owes it to this country, Stern said. The guy would be terrific, and I think he'd do it, Stern added. So, for those of you who are longtime listeners to this show, you know that I have a very strong rule against celebrities and comedians getting involved in politics. I almost always shoot it down immediately. With that being said, I would make an exception for Jon Stewart. I think that being an effective politician also requires you to be an effective communicator. And Jon Stewart by far is one of the most effective communicators in our country. I mean, and I say this as somebody who, growing up, learning about politics, I learned about it from Jon Stewart, watching The Daily Show every single night, and he continues to impress. 
Now, I don't necessarily know that his politics would be as radical as mine if I saw an entire fleshed out policy platform. But having said that, though, within the confines of our terrible neoliberal system, do I think that he could actually make a difference if he were to be elected president? Yeah. I do. I think that he could get a lot of things done. Having said that, though, I don't think that any one politician is a panacea. I'm, I, I've kind of moved past this thinking that one politician can and will save us. I think that those days are gone. I think that things are too bad for all of our solutions to be solved with, with just one individual. Real change has to come from the bottom up and not the top down. Having said that, though, I think that Jon Stewart, if he chose to run, could get a lot of good accomplished. But the question is, would he do it? Howard Stern says yes. But Jon Stewart already answered this question. So last year, after he uh, basically lobbied Congress by shaming Republicans into supporting health care for veterans, well, there was an op-ed that said he should run for president, and he was very clear. He took the Twitter to write, um, no thank you. So he doesn't want to do it. He's already made this clear. But if I might add, I think that somebody who doesn't want to be president is really the best person because there's so many people who seek out public office, not necessarily because they have this belief system that they're adhering to or they're doing it for altruistic reasons. I think that most politicians, and this is a generalization, but I think it's true. I think that most politicians run for public office for self-aggrandizement. Somebody who doesn't want to be in public office is really the best person because they're not thinking two to three steps ahead about their own career, what they can do when they get out and become a lobbyist for an industry that helped them get elected and then that they represented in Congress. We need someone who doesn't want to be president. And that's why I think that there was such a large amount of appeal for someone like Bernie Sanders, even though he's run for president twice and is considering a third run if Biden doesn't run. It's clear that Bernie Sanders never wanted to do this. Back in 2016, actually 2015, before he announced his 2016 run, he was trying to get Elizabeth Warren to take on Hillary Clinton, but she didn't want to do it. So he chose to step up. And had he had broader political ambitions, don't you think he would have pursued them at an earlier age, not when he was in his 70s? And you see, not wanting to be in power that made a difference on Bernie Sanders' campaign. I mean, as difficult as it is for him to win in a Democratic primary with all of this media propaganda. You can tell that he actually cares about the issues that he's talking about. And even if I have my disagreements with Bernie Sanders, you can't doubt the sincerity of him, right? There's a reason why he is consistently the most popular politician in America, and it's because he means what he says, and that's evident, right? When he's trying to be a little bit, I don't know, I guess coy about his real beliefs, it comes through. So there is value in authenticity, and that's because we're lacking it in politics. And when you see somebody who's actually authentic, that does wonders. I mean, Trump is not the best example. He lies every two seconds, but there's something authentic about him that isn't applicable to other Republicans. I mean, compare him with Ron DeSantis. Everything that Ron DeSantis says feels rehearsed and phony and contrived. But with regard to Donald Trump, even though he's lying, he still says things that we know he's really thinking. Like he says the quiet part loud, and that's part of the appeal for, the appeal for Republicans. So if we had politicians that actually wanted to run for 
pure reasons and not selfish reasons, I think that the country would be in a better place. But having said that, though, that doesn't mean that all of our problems would be solved, right? It's not a supply issue. It's, it's the institutions. The institutions are the problem. Capitalism is the problem. We've commodified every single aspect of American life, including elections. So if you want to get elected, you essentially have to pledge fealty to large multinational corporations. Otherwise, good luck getting elected because that requires money. And trying to raise money using small grassroots donors is very difficult. I would know. I've brought on probably more than 100 politicians who've tried doing it. And just a couple of them have gotten elected. So... You know, we're in a situation where I feel like as de desperation increases, as so many crises get worse, I'm willing to try different things. And if that means running one celebrity, one comedian, I'm for it if it's Jon Stewart. But for anyone else, I won't make that, uh, that exception for them because I think that Jon Stewart is unique in the sense that he really does care about these things and he is educated and he is able to speak about these things in a way that makes them easily digestible. But any other politician or any other celebrity that wants to become a politician, no. I'll write it off almost immediately because I don't want somebody to get involved because they can. They have fame and name recognition. Therefore, they could become a member of Congress or a president. I want them to get involved if they actually want to fix the fucking issues that plague the country. We've talked about Nebraskan State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh's ongoing filibuster of literally everything in her state's government until her Republican colleagues agree to pull an anti-trans piece of legislation that would ban gender-affirming care for trans youth. Now, I've been personally fascinated with this story. We've done multiple videos about this and even received a shout-out from Senator Kavanaugh herself, which was incredibly cool. But the reason why this story is so important it speaks to me so much is because senator kavanaugh has created a blueprint that all democratic politicians should be following right now in order to defeat these draconian bans on lgbtq plus rights and this strategy is needed now more than ever considering that there has already been 300 plus anti-lgbtq plus bills in 2023 alone including 91 gender affirming care bans 30 anti-trans sports bans 44 proposed bans on lgbtq speech 27 drag bans and 12 bans that legally erase trans people from existence and it's so bad that several states are seeing multiple bans on gender-affirming care being proposed with varying degrees of strictness. So this is an all-out assault across the country on LGBTQ plus rights. So now more than ever, we need people like Michaela Kavanaugh who are actually standing up and fighting against this wave of hate. Now, Michaela temporarily paused her filibuster to debate the anti-trans bill that she's trying to stop. And um, after going scorched earth, she's trying a little bit of a different strategy temporarily. She's trying to level with her GOP colleagues by appealing to what's left of their sense of humanity. Let's watch. I've been asked a lot. It's no surprise. I've been asked to do a lot of interviews nationally from remarks that I made on this floor. And I've been asked time and again, why do Republicans want this? Colleagues. Democrats, I'd like to speak to the Republicans in the room. Just the Republicans. My answer has always been, 
This is not a Republican issue. This is not something that Republicans want. I know so many of you, I've served with you for four years. I know you. I know your families. I know your hearts. I know that you are caring, kind, and compassionate people who are here to do public service. And I am asking you to pay attention to this debate, to pay attention to this conversation. Open your hearts and your minds and think about what brought you here to begin with. What did you believe government should be? How did you believe government should function? So many of you have talked to me about government overreach time and time again, big government, inflated government, parental rights. This bill stands in opposition to the tenants that many of One you have expressed to me are at the foundation of why you are here. It will not be popular to vote against this, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't. And I know many of you have voted against things that were not popular in the past. And I know that you have a heart for service, and I ask that you use that heart for service in this debate. And to those of you that are watching, who are part of the LGBTQ community, the, L the trans community, you are loved, you matter. I am here to serve you. Thank you. So she's trying absolutely everything. Carrots, sticks, whatever it's going to take to convince these Republicans to give up on this potentially deadly piece of anti-trans legislation. And during debate, she proved that all it takes sometimes is just one person to do what's right and others will follow. If one person shows courage, others will too. And I say this because her Democratic colleagues didn't just stand in solidarity with her and trans youth in denouncing this bill, but one lawmaker even agreed to join Michaela in filibustering every single piece of legislation until the Republican Party agrees to pull this bill. And they were very clear, there will be no compromise on this particular issue. If this bill advances, the filibuster will, will resume, I will join it with my whole heart, with my whole chest, and every bill will be going to cloture. This is a recycled playbook. A lot of these things were said in the 60s, 70s, and 80s about gay people. This idea that we were somehow confused We'll grow out of it, it's just a phase. We don't know who we are. It's insulting. And I think it's a bit dehumanizing. The only compromise with bills like this is to just leave people alone. There is no such thing as compromise when we're talking about taking away the right to be a parent to your own child. Just leave people alone. If you agree to disagree, that's fine. We can do that. Then pull the bill and you can do 
and parent the way you want to, and the rest of us can do and parent the way we want to. That's the compromise. Leave people alone. It's really easy to make medical procedures sound barbaric and awful when you're talking to people who don't understand or practice medicine. We have the same conversation when we talk about abortion. We use triggering and emotional words like murder or mutilation to describe medical procedures. But the thing is, is that none of us know what we're talking about. None of us practice medicine. So to a lot of people, it does sound barbaric because it removes the humanity in the situation. It removes the nuance involved in really difficult private medical decisions. And that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for people to be able to maintain their humanity. So one in 2,000 children are born neither boy nor girl. And a decade ago, doctors often encouraged families to pick a side, pick a sex. And you know why they stopped doing that? Because gender identity is complex and doctors can get it wrong and ruin that child's life forever. You give examples in the bill, but there's a long list of biology that can come into play in saying things in the text like, such as, is a dangerous way to describe this potential. And by the way, my first babysitter when I was a little kid was a hermaphrodite. So I learned from a very early age that people's biology can be very different than male or female. Now, hermaphroditism is a dated term, but for those unaware of what she's talking about, she's referring to intersex people who are born with ambiguous genitalia. But every single one of those speeches was just incredible. They were authentic, genuine, but most importantly, they were correct, especially that comment from this senator, Senator Day, who put it very simply, leave people alone. Now, I'm sure that Democratic lawmakers in states across the country are also vociferously condemning similar bills. But the question is, what are they doing to block these bills? Are they going as far as Michaela and her Democratic colleagues? See, Nebraskan lawmakers are proving that fighting for LGBTQ plus people isn't a lost cause in red states just because you're outnumbered. You still have a number of tools at your disposal. The question is whether or not you're going to use them. Now, because Republicans are demons, well, everything that these lawmakers said predictably went in one ear and out the other. In some bills, we've argued, at least so far in hearings, that 13-year-olds can't be responsible for murder because their brains aren't sufficiently formed to understand that murder is wrong or that it's final or that you know somebody will never draw another breath after you you kill somebody but here we're saying that people can be have their gender changed well operations to attempt to change their gender they can't be reversed and maybe 10 years from now they may not think that uh, that was a good idea. They may have medical complications from that. I think that's wrong. God created us male and female. And it's kind of strange that when you go in for surgery to change your identity, you only get one choice. If you're male, your choice is to become female. 
If you're female, your choice is to become male. But our society says we have many different genders. But it is strange you only get to choose one when you make the choice to change. There are people who have made that decision to make that transition when they're young. And as Senator Kyle said, when their brain matures, they realize that was not the best decision or perhaps it was the poorest decision they've ever made in their life. But it's irreversible. It's irreversible. And so for the life of me, I can't imagine why we want to mess with something that God created. Spoken like a true ignorant imbecile. First of all, not all of us are part of your little book club. And we don't subscribe to your antiquated belief system. So stop trying to push that on all of us. Second of all, gender-affirming care for trans youth is not irreversible. These Republicans don't even know what they're talking about. For children who show persistent signs of gender dysphoria, gender-affirming care for them at younger ages simply means social transition, not surgery, contrary to popular belief. That means that they get to choose different clothes and use different pronouns, maybe a different name. And when they become preteens and they've shown persistent gender dysphoria over a long period of time, well, then a doctor may prescribe them puberty blockers if their parents agree to that. This just gives them additional time to make a more long-term decision about their gender. And so long as they're not on puberty blockers for more than two years, the effects are completely reversible. And when it comes to teenagers, they may be prescribed hormone replacement therapy as a treatment for persistent gender dysphoria. Bottom surgery is not permitted on minors. No genital mutilation is happening, unless, of course, you count circumcision. But something tells me these Republicans don't really have a problem with that kind of mutilation. The point is, these treatments for gender dysphoria have been approved by various medical associations the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and they've been deemed medically necessary since they reduce suicidality among trans youth. They are important. They save lives. All of these medical decisions are made by the child, the parents, and the doctor. And these theocratic Republicans should have no say over these private medical decisions. So, you know, you can see that the words that their Democratic colleagues said didn't resonate. They didn't take to heart the recommendation that they mind their own fucking business or educate themselves because, predictably, Republicans are going to Republican, and that means you act like a demon and you go after the most vulnerable in society. But with that being said, I want to share Michaela's closing thoughts because even though she tried to initially be more nice to these Republican ghouls in order to gently guide them to the correct and humane decision, she still made it very clear that she is not fucking around. And she's blocking any amendments to this anti-trans bill. And if they're going to vote for it, well, she wants them to put their name on the most evil iteration of this legislation so people can see who these Republicans really are. And she is going to speak about this idea of compromise with regard to this bill. And as you're going to see, she points out that there's no compromise on this issue. You're not going to pass a less harmful version of this bill. We're going to pass no ban on gender affirming care. So let's listen. When it comes to the protection of children in this state, I will not compromise. I will not compromise. I have ensured that there are motions to block any amendments from coming to debate. That's my prerogative in using the rules. So if you vote for this, you vote for this.
you vote for LB 574 in its purest evil form. You vote for 574 to go after the medical community, to go after parents, and to go after trans children. That's what you vote for. You can blame me for voting for it, but I can't push any of your fingers on your buttons. You vote for it, you vote for it. I'm going to block anything from changing this bill. I tried to get the committee to change this bill before it came out of committee. I tried to convince the committee members that we should consider an amendment. I asked if the introducer had requested an amendment. No, no, no. So now you want to compromise to assuage your guilt? No, thank you. I will not allow you to assuage your guilt. If you want to find a way to vote for 574, vote for 574. It's there for you. Go for it. Have at it. But it's not going to get better. It's going to be in its pure form that Senator Kalth and the male members of the HHS committee decided it would be in. You get to vote for that and nothing else. And if you want to blame me for your inability to stand up for your own beliefs, One fine. I don't have to live with you. I don't have to live with your conscience. You do. And that right there, my friends, is how it's done. She is the one setting the tone. She is the one dictating to them how things are going to be. She's not going to allow them to pass some watered-down version that's still harmful, and she's also not going to let them run away from this bill after they learn how harmful it really is. I mean, if you come for trans kids, she'll come after you. And now she has backup. That's the message that I saw from Democratic Party lawmakers in Nebraska today. Nothing but solidarity for each other and trans people. Now, here's what happened after this debate took place. As KETV ABC7 reports, lawmakers adjourned Tuesday without taking any other action. Hunt and Omaha State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh have since filed a series of motions that likely will further delay a first round vote on advancing the measure. So true to her word, she is continuing to do everything she can to stop this bill from advancing. And I said this the last time that we talked about this, but I'm going to say it again because I think that it's important that I repeat this point. Democratic lawmakers across the country need to take notes. They need to learn from Senator Kavanaugh. This is what they need to do. Right now, you can stop these harmful anti-LGBTQ plus bills if you do what Senator Kavanaugh is doing. If your state proposed anti-LGBTQ plus legislation, then you now have a viable strategy that will work. So if you're watching this and you've seen these bills proposed in your state, call your state representative and ask them why they're not doing what Senator Kavanaugh in Nebraska is doing. And if they don't know about her story, educate them. Let them know that they, too, have the power to block these bigoted bills. The question is, will they use the power that they have to protect some of the most vulnerable people in our society? And if not, then why are they even there? Why were they elected in the first place? So... In closing, Michaela has single-handedly raised the standards for what it means to be an LGBTQ plus ally with power. The question is, why aren't other Democratic politicians in states across the country doing what she's doing? So if you're as touched by Michaela's advocacy as I am, hit the like button and be sure to subscribe for more updates on this story because I'm assuming I'm going to keep talking about this because this story is incredible because it gives me hope. It shows that you don't have to lie down and take it. You can actually stand up and fight these Republicans. And guess what? Sometimes you might actually be successful 
All it takes is courage. This vaccine would not exist without NIH's partnership and expertise and the substantial investment of the taxpayers of this country. As a matter of public record, U.S. taxpayers spent $12 billion on the research, development, and procurement of the NIH Moderna COVID vaccine. And here is the thank you that the taxpayers of this country received from Moderna for that huge investment. They are thanking the taxpayers of the United States by proposing to quadruple the price of the COVID vaccine to as much as $130 once the government stockpile runs out. At a time when it costs less than $3 to manufacture the vaccine. $3 to manufacture it, $130 on the market. What this means is that Moderna will be charging Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, the Department of Defense, the Indian Health Service, and insurance plans, private insurance plans on the Affordable Care Act, billions of dollars more for the COVID vaccine. So all of us who are concerned about the deficit, the national debt, billions more goes to Moderna. Meanwhile, Moderna has already made $21 billion in profits off the COVID vaccine during the pandemic, and four of Moderna's executives and investors collectively became more than $10 billion wealthier as a result of the massive taxpayer investment <clears throat> into that corporation. As soon as Moderna started to receive billions of dollars from the federal government, Mr. Bansell literally became a billionaire overnight and is now worth over $4 billion. He was also able to secure a golden parachute for himself worth another $926 million after he leaves the company. But let's be clear, Mr. Bansell is not alone. One of Moderna's co-founders, Nubar Afayan, is now worth $1.8 billion. Another co-founder, Mr. Langer, is now worth $1.7 billion. And one of the founding investors in Moderna, Tim Springer, is now worth $2.2 billion. None of these four individuals were billionaires before the taxpayers of our country funded the COVID-19 vaccine. This type of profiteering and excessive CEO compensation is exactly what the American people, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, or independents, are sick and tired of. You just listened to Senator Bernie Sanders eloquently explain how after we, the taxpayers, helped fund the development of Moderna's life-saving COVID-19 vaccines, well, the things that we get is a slap in the face in the form of a massive, massive price increase. Yeah. But why? Why would they do this? Well, the news of this price hike coincides with a decreased demand for the COVID-19 vaccines. As Reuters reports, Moderna in February forecasted significantly declining 2023 COVID-19 vaccine sales, which reached $18.4 billion in 2022. Demand for the shots has declined sharply this year due to built-up product inventories around the world and increased population immunity from high rates of vaccination and and previous infections.
So in other words, lower demand leads to fewer vaccine purchases, which then leads to lower profits. So how do you maintain profitability given this change in demand? Well, you simply jack up the price. And that is exactly what Moderna did. Now, to put their greed into context, we're going to watch a quick clip from More Perfect Union that explains how this company was pretty brazen in prioritizing profits over the lives of people. The major breakthroughs behind the NIH Moderna vaccine, from the invention of the stabilized spike protein to the underlying mRNA vaccine technology, were all funded by the U.S. government heavily. Moderna has benefited immensely from the public sector, receiving funding from the federal government reportedly since it only had three employees. But the private sector often succeeds at profiting astronomically off of publicly funded innovation because the public sector gives away technology and funding without asking anything in return. The federal government just hands this stuff out. They're the most one-sided contracts I've ever seen. And what have the results of exclusive corporate control been? To start, Moderna wildly overcharged countries for the vaccine and initially sold doses almost exclusively to rich countries, frustrating the Biden administration and hurting efforts to stop the global pandemic. Moderna also refused to share the vaccine recipe with South African scientists working with the World Health Organization to scale up global production. And now Moderna is raising prices. The former head of the CDC, Dr. Tom Frieden, said it best. They are behaving as if they have absolutely no responsibility beyond maximizing the return on investment. So they used taxpayer money to develop the COVID-19 vaccine, and then they initially only sold them to rich countries and then subsequently refused to give the recipe to developing countries because they wanted to be the only ones to exclusively profit off of this vaccine. And now they're price gouging us. This is why Bernie Sanders was so angry during this hearing. This is corporate greed in its purest form. So we're going to watch the next clip where Bernie Sanders grills him. And um, this was very, very satisfying because very clearly there's no good excuse for this company's behavior. Some of us have a hard time understanding how a company that made $21 billion in profit, a company that enabled you and your associates to become multi-billionaires, a company that would not have developed this vaccine without the help of the taxpayers of this country, now comes before the public and says, oh, by the way, we want to quadruple prices, which will mean that the deficit goes up or taxes go up because of the increased expense that Medicare and Medicaid and VA have to pay. So I, I concur with Senator Lujan uh, about that issue. I want to ask you uh, earlier, in response to Senator Smith, you talked about uh, negotiating prices. Uh, am I hearing from you that, in fact, you are prepared not to charge $130 uh, for a vaccine to the U.S. government, but less than that? Is that what I hear? What I'm saying, uh, Mr. Chairman, is there's a list price. It depends if it's a single dose product or pre-filled syringe product. There's a list price around $130. And then with different customers, there are going to be discussions. Uh, but, you know, that's an issue that many have raised. We have no transparency in pricing. It is a totally insane situation. Everybody pays a different price. The United States government helped you develop that vaccine. It is a huge consumer. Are you prepared to substantially charge less for the vaccine to the United States government and our agencies. Given the situation at hand, uh, Mr. Chairman, we have no idea of the volume that we need this year. 
We have very increased complexity. Yeah. You have complexity, but you have money for stock buybacks by the billions, and you guys became billionaires. That doesn't seem too complex to me. Let me ask you this question, at least. The United States pays, the people in our country pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs in general, something this committee will work on. Will you at least tell us today that the price you are charging for the vaccine will be lower than what other countries around the world are paying? Or are, once again, we're going to pay the highest prices? So, Mr. Chairman, the price will depend on the value in each country. The cost of healthcare is different in each now, country. That's not the answer. That's a whole, all right. I'm asking you a simple question. Your vaccine was developed with the help of the United States government. I am asking you whether or not we are going to continue to pay the highest prices in the world for that vaccine. I understand everything is complex, but I also understand you have money for stock buybacks and exorbitant compensation packages for yourself. Will you at least tell the taxpayers of this country that the price we pay for the vaccine will be less than other countries? I cannot, I cannot say that the price will be lower than other countries. Shameless, just absolutely shameless. And what's funny is that he had the audacity to make it seem as if he was doing us a favor by waiting to raise the price until now. So at one point during the testimony, he said this, quote, the way we think about the price during the pandemic was actually a discount, he said. Jesus Christ. We're talking here today about an increase in price. If you think about what happens in any other industry, when you get a very large volume, you get a very big discount. That's actually what we did with 500 million orders from the U.S. government. This year, if we get 30 million or 50 million, that would be great. What a fucking weasel this guy is. In other words, if you want a discount, you have to buy in bulk despite demand. And if the vaccines go bad, they go bad. Because you see, when you buy in bulk, when it comes to products in other industries, this is how you get a discount. The problem is we're not talking about other products in other industries. We're not talking about M&Ms. We're not talking about PS5s. We're talking about a life-saving vaccine that you would not have been able to develop without the NIH and taxpayer funding. But to him, the true value of the COVID-19 vaccine, it isn't measured by how many lives it can save or the good that it does overall around the globe. The value to him is derived exclusively from how much money it enables him and his company to make. And Bernie Sanders pointed this out. You know, when you talk about value, it's an interesting philosophical concept. In your judgment, what does value mean to a woman who lost her husband because the family cannot afford the price, the outrageous price of a prescription drug. Is that a value that we should consider or is it only, is that a value that we should consider? We believe in access, Mr. Chairman. And as I said, our products, we're gonna work really hard for the uninsured that they are available for no cost. And I understand, I, I, I may be asking you a broader question than just Moderna. Uh, Senator Markey mentioned Pfizer having a, a cancer drug for 175,000, I believe is what he said. All right? Uh, what you, another company. That's another company. Of course, I know that. But I'm asking your statement. Is, you talk about value, and the value is, well, we've helped the economy, and we've done all these things. True enough. But what about the value of human lives that are lost or the suffering while companies make billions and people can't afford the price. Is that a value to be considered? 
of course, Mr. Chairman, we need to work together, industry and the governments and all the players in the healthcare system to figure out how do we make sure the products are available. I completely agree with you. We work hard to make medicine and to do science to help people. So I agree with you. Well, you raise an interesting question. Okay, that's, and Senator Cassidy, you know, and Senator Romney talked about it. Now, tell me this. And this is kind of a value issue that I think we should really get into as a nation. Jonas Salk, you're familiar with Jonas Salk, invented polio. Did not make billions for his invention. In fact, he gave it away. And he said, I'm so proud to have created this vaccine this, to save lives. Alexander Fleming developed penicillin, a huge advance for medicine, saved, what, millions of lives? Frederick Banting sold his intellectual property for $1 for insulin. All right. What do you think about those guys and those scientists who said, you know what? Our function in life is to create wonderful drugs that will ease human suffering and save lives, not to become excessively rich. Do you think they were crazy? I think what they did was very noble. I think what we have to do is to invest in the technology. If we didn't have a technology when the pandemic happened, there would have been no Moderna vaccine, Mr. Chairman. Look, we all agree that we need the technology, but what I am asking you, and some of my friends here are saying, is that the only thing that motivates you is to become a billionaire. That, that's not true. All right, Mr. but then can we have a science where people get paid well. I have no problem with Moderna making money. But you're hearing here massive cash paybacks, you becoming a multi-billionaire. Do we, should we develop a counterculture, perhaps, which says your motive is not just making billions, but developing all of the drugs we need for the terrible diseases that this world faces? And that's what we're doing, Mr. Chairman. That's why Moderna is a different company. Our number one investment this year is in R&D. As I mentioned, $4.5 billion. As, as How I much do you provide in stock buybacks? Sorry? How much do you provide in stock buybacks? We have not decided yet as a board. The, the number of a stock buyback that's still open is $2.8 I think. Yeah. Our number one priority is R&D. If we could invest more in R&D, we would. The, the challenge we have is phase-free studies takes time to happen, Mr. Chairman. The last line there was so telling. He said that Moderna's number one priority is research and development, which is why that's their highest cost. But when Bernie Sanders asked him how much they paid in stock buybacks, what did he say? 2.9 billion. That's billion with a B. So if innovation really was their number one priority, why not take that additional 2.9 billion that you spend on stock buybacks and put that towards research and development? because he's full of shit. So this is what happens when you commodify healthcare. This is why healthcare should not be a private profit-making thing. The goal of pharmaceutical companies should be developing drugs that help people and save lives. But under our perverted capitalist system, they have an incentive to make maximizing profits their number one goal. This is why more states need to follow California's lead and start manufacturing their own drugs. And the federal government needs to remove the profit motives from these companies by nationalizing them. That way they turn them exclusively into public services for the people who fund them and they don't have to worry about profits because the goal ultimately is to provide a public service to the American people. But we'll leave that there. I think that Bernie Sanders grilling him was absolutely satisfying. And if you agree, hit that like button.
TikTok CEO is scheduled to testify before the House Energy and Commerce Committee today in what I'm assuming will be an effort to convince U.S. lawmakers to not ban TikTok. And I'm sure that that hearing is going to be incredibly unhinged because, as you're probably aware of by now, the vitriol towards TikTok is pretty bipartisan. Both Democrats and Republicans cite security concerns since the app is owned by China, and even some accuse the app of transing the kids. And no, that's not a joke. Do you think that the rising amount of kids identifying as trans is largely because of TikTok? Yes, it, it, I think it is absolutely a social contagion, and I think TikTok is a big driver of that. Tell, so about 45 seconds, explain to the older listeners that might be skeptical of that why. They say, how could somebody become trans because of a social media app? Well, the idea of TikTok is, is to target kids, right? You don't, you don't see really a lot of older people on it. It's, a, it's very kid-friendly, and they, the Chinese um, algorithm they feed this stuff specifically to American kids. So they're feeding these trans activist content, you know, telling kids, look, go on puberty blockers. You might be the opposite gender. Uh, maybe you'll be happier. And I, I believe that it's a really sophisticated algorithm that's directly feeding this to our children. That's exactly right. I, I just want everyone to understand. I mean, look, TikTok owned by the Chinese Communist Party. The, we, we don't have we, we have enough evidence for me to say this. I, I, on good authority, believe, and I think any rational person would, that the Chinese Communist Party military inst installations are programming the algorithm to make our children more likely to be trans, to try to get young men to be ashamed of their country. The CCP has a gateway into every single one of our kids via TikTok. Ah, uh, yes, China, famous friend to trans people, as we all know, who is seeking to algorithmically manipulate the world into becoming trans through TikTok. That's why they built the app, probably. Seems very, very plausible. I shouldn't have to explain this, but it doesn't work that way. Being trans is not contagious, and even if it were, you certainly couldn't catch it through TikTok. But on top of that, if you could convince someone to be trans or gay, don't you think that 100% of the population would be straight and cis, considering that's what we see the most of? I mean, these people are so stupid that I don't even know if they think about the words that come out of their mouth sometimes. Now, that might be the dumbest argument in favor of banning TikTok, but in truth, no one, in my opinion, has actually made a good argument to ban TikTok. And really no lawmakers up until this point have been willing to condemn the fear-mongering around TikTok. But Congressman Jamal Bowman is perhaps the only lawmaker, at least to my knowledge, to publicly condemn the idea of banning TikTok. And that's good because banning TikTok is a very dumb idea. NBC News reports, quote, this is a space where these creators have found a platform to share their ideas, their inspirations, their thoughts, their voices with the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And why do we want to take that away? Bowman told NBC News. Why do we need to ban a platform that 150 million Americans now use? There are many apps on our phones right now that are Chinese apps. And so the idea that, oh, TikTok is the boogeyman, it's just part of a political fear mongering that's happening, said Bowman, who posted 
posts frequently on the video sharing app and has a substantial following himself. He compared criticism of TikTok to Republican fear-mongering about an open border and the debt limit, as well as xenophobia around China. Quote, I haven't seen any hard evidence that TikTok is committing some form of espionage, he said. What I've heard is speculation and what I've heard is innuendo. Bingo. Both parties have failed to demonstrate why TikTok specifically poses some unique threat to U.S. security enough to warrant a ban. Now, listen, if they want to restrict the use of TikTok on government devices, as many governments around the world have already done, I think that that's perfectly reasonable. If it's a security threat, that's how you handle it. But to ban it for everyone, that to me is just unreasonable. It's almost certainly the case that TikTok is indeed collecting user data. I admit this. They're doing it for advertising purposes at a minimum. Perhaps they uh, are using the algorithm to sow discord among Americans as if we needed any help with that. But if these are all reasons that lead you to the conclusion that we should ban TikTok, then why just limit the ban to TikTok? We already know what other tech companies do. Facebook's whistleblower informed us that their algorithm intentionally sows discord among users in order to increase engagement. Google also exploits user data that it collects. Every major tech company, regardless of their country of origin, violates user privacy in overt and egregious ways. And it's not worse simply because China does it. It's bad when they all do it. That's the reality, though. As users, we do deserve privacy. We need a digital bill of rights. We need regulations. What we don't need, however, is the U.S. government singling out one app purely for political reasons. Furthermore, how many U.S. lawmakers calling for a TikTok ban have accepted campaign contributions from other tech companies like Google or Facebook? How is that not a conflict of interest. How do we know this isn't just another instance where U.S. politicians are doing the bidding of their donors? Because obviously, it would benefit companies like Google and Facebook to see their biggest competitor banned. I mean, why do you think YouTube recently introduced shorts? It's because they're trying to compete with TikTok, who's winning right now in the social media war. Now, that's all speculation. I have no idea if the result of this TikTok ban or the proposed ban is due to corruption. But what I will say is that banning TikTok is a very bad idea that I do not support. And to the extent that the Biden administration chooses to move forward with this plan, it will backfire. Some users whose livelihoods depend on the platform's existence are justifiably angry and they're already making their voices known by protesting. And the Biden administration, I don't think that they seem to realize how a ban would undeniably enrage younger voters and backfire, as NBC News explains. In 2020, Aidan Cohn Murphy used TikTok to rally support for Joe Biden. Now he's trying to use the platform to stop Biden from killing it. Quote, I'm not defending TikTok as a company. I'm defending my entire generation, said the 19-year-old Harvard freshman who, as a high schooler during the 2020 campaign, founded a group called TikTok for Biden. It has since changed its name to Gen Z for Change, formally incorporated as a political nonprofit, and says it now includes 500 creators with a combined 500 million followers on multiple platforms. If they went ahead with banning TikTok, it would feel like a slap in the face to a lot of young Americans, added Cone Murphy. Democrats don't understand the political consequences this would have. Some worry that if Washington bans Gen Z's favorite app for reasons that most are likely unfamiliar with, accusations that the app is collecting users' location data and sharing it with the Chinese government, it might leave a lasting mark on an entire generation, depressing turnout, increasing apathy, and shaping their view of the role of the federal government.
banning TikTok? I mean, are you trying to engage young voters or not? What are we doing here? Representative Jamal Bowman, a former middle school principal and member of the Progressive Squad, said in an interview, quote, they will absolutely stay at home. There's no question about that. And again, Jamal Bowman is absolutely correct here. And I hope that more lawmakers speak out against this. This is going to unquestionably backfire. If all of a sudden YouTube was banned and I lost the platform that I spent years building up, I would never forget that, and I would be sure to punish the politicians responsible for its demise at the very next election. And it's not just, to be clear, the influencers who we should be considering here. It's also the average users who I'm assuming use the app because it brings them joy and happiness. Why take that away from them? Why take that away from 150 million people in America only? Now, look, with that being said, I fully acknowledge that any app that I use is going to transmit data to corporations and foreign governments. And I hate that, but I'm at least aware of the risk. I know about the risk. So if the Chinese government learns about my affinity for funny cat TikToks and low calorie recipes, I find that as disturbing as Facebook knowing about these interests that I have as well. The goal shouldn't be to arbitrarily punish one company. The goal for lawmakers across the globe who's concerned about TikTok should be to create international standards so as to protect all user data on all apps, make sure they're encrypted and protected from third parties. But those are just my thoughts, um, but this is probably a pretty good time to let you know that The Humanist Report is also on TikTok, so uh, be sure to give us a follow there while you still can. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.